Turn with me to Matthew 13. We start a new chapter today, finally. Some of you probably thought we'd never get out of chapter 12. But we start a new chapter. We're going to start looking at the first 17 verses. It says, On that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out, and others fell on the good soil and were yielding a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears... Let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered and said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Matthew 13 marks a division in Matthew's gospel. It's very clearly beginning a new train of thought. It opens, up, uh, it opens us to a new perspective in our Lord's ministry. As you know by now, Matthew's gospel is geared primarily to present Jesus Christ as the King, the Son of God, the Messiah, the rightful heir to David's throne. And we have seen how the first three chapters presented Jesus as the rightful King who was in the Messianic line, who was affirmed by the Magi, the Oriental Kingmakers, and was then attested to by John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. Then in chapter 4, Jesus was shown to be the King in his conflict with Satan, whom he defeated giving clear testimony that he was God's chosen anointed king. Uh, for only God's king could overcome Satan. And then in chapters 5 to 7, he speaks with authority, laying out the principles of his kingdom. Then in chapters 8 to 10, we saw the credentials of the king as attested by various supernatural miracles, but at the same time, there was mounting rejection of him. Finally, in chapters 11 and 12, Jesus denounces the sinful nation of Israel for rejecting him, promising them severe judgment, but at the same time offering uh, them an invitation to come to him for rest from the burden of self-righteous legalism that had been imposed on them by their religious leaders. And finally, the rejection reaches a climax, and his pronouncement of judgment reaches a climax as well. Uh, their final rejection is summed up by the fact that they accuse Jesus of being satanic. 
and Jesus pronounces a final judgment on their leaders and says, you've reached the point that you can't possibly be forgiven. So as we approach chapter 13, the die is cast. Israel has rejected the king and the kingdom because you cannot separate the kingdom from the king. For centuries they had awaited the Messiah. For centuries they had awaited the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. And when it was offered to them, they refused it. And they lost it in that generation. And so as we approach chapter 13, we enter a new perspective in the ministry of Christ. In his commentary on Matthew, Dr. Stanley Toussaint uh, says, Not seeing the Messiahship of Jesus in his words and works, they separated the fruit from the tree. Uh, you see, it's not that they denied his miracles. It's not that they were not fascinated by his words. It's not that they weren't aware of his power. It's that they never traced the fruit to its logical conclusion. They separated it from the reality of who he was. And so as we come to chapter 13, we can see the shadow of the cross looming in the background. Already back in chapter 12, verse 14, uh, we're told that the Pharisees took counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him. They'd already reached the point of conspiring to kill him. Uh, they've rejected the king. They've rejected his kingdom. So the question that should immediately come to your mind and the mind of any thoughtful reader is this. If Jesus came to offer the kingdom to Israel and to establish and rule it as prophesied in Scripture, and they refused him and his kingdom, was God's plan totally frustrated? Did his own predictions fail to come true? Uh, what then is to be the character at the present time? What's to be the nature of the message and the mission of the disciples and all believers? In other words, what happens now? What's next? Those are exactly the questions answered in chapter 13. Uh, it tells us what's going to happen. Because, listen carefully now, the kingdom cannot come until the nation of Israel receives the king. And so at this point, the kingdom had to be postponed in terms of its fulfillment. Uh, and I know that sounds redundant, but it's still a good phrase, as I hope you'll understand that before we're through. Because they rejected the king, the kingdom in its full fulfillment had to be postponed, and it had to be postponed to a future time. What time is that? The second coming of Jesus Christ. You see, that's why Christ is coming a second time, to bring the kingdom that was refused the first time. He came, and his message was this, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And the message of his forerunner, John the Baptist, was the same. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the message of the apostles, Matthew 10:7, was the same. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were constantly preaching the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And yet the people said no to the king and no to the kingdom. And so therefore the kingdom was postponed. You say, well, why didn't God just eliminate it altogether? Because God made eternal, immutable promises to Israel. And God keeps his promises. God is a God of his word. So if God had just set the kingdom aside and said, forget it, I gave you one shot at it and dropped it, then his prophecies would not come to pass and his word would be violated. And so it's postponed until they believe. Yes. Well, 
come on up and you teach this because you're ahead of me here. <laughs> you are going. That's good. That's very good. So, yeah, and that day will one day come when they will believe. Zechariah 12.10 And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And then Zechariah continues in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. It says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. And it will be in that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass away from the land. So there's coming a day when they will look on the one whom they have pierced, and they will have a fountain of cleansing open to them. They will be redeemed. And so the apostle Paul says in Romans 11, So all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And we believe it will come about in the time known as the Great Tribulation. Uh, also at that time, Revelation 7, 9 to 14, tells us that there will be so many Gentiles saved from every nation and tribe and peoples and tongues that they will be unable to be counted. Uh, so the nation of Israel will be redeemed and there will be countless Gentiles saved also during that time. And then Christ will return and defeat Satan and his forces, bind Satan in the pit for a thousand years, and then the kingdom of God will be established. That's spoken of in Revelation 20. So when we talk about the full fulfillment of the kingdom, we mean that kingdom, that kingdom which comes to pass on earth both internally in the hearts of believing people and externally as Christ rules and reigns as king on the earth. Now, there were some Jews who believed in Jesus, right? Uh, there was a remnant who received the king internally. And there are those today who receive the king internally. And someday, But someday there's going to be a massive response. And when the kingdom comes internally at that level that it, that it does in the tribulation time, then it will also come externally in the wonderful millennial reign of Christ on the earth for a thousand years. But what happens between Matthew 13 and Revelation 20? <laughs> what happens between the ascension of Jesus back to heaven and his second coming? This is the period that some theologians have called the parenthesis. Uh, some have called it the interim. It's, it is a period that is not seen in the Old Testament. And so Jesus calls it the mysteries of the kingdom. Uh, it is that which was hidden from time past. They didn't see this period of time. They had no teaching on what it would be like. And so in Matthew 13, you have a series, <coughs> a series of eight parables from verse 1 all the way to verse 52, and in those parables, Jesus describes the interim period. He describes that parenthesis in which we live. We're in that period. And that is what makes this so profound for us, because if we can understand what Jesus says about this period, 
then we can understand how to accomplish what he wants done in this period. We need to understand chapter 13 because it's talking about our time, our period. It, what will it be like when the king has been rejected and the, the kingdom postponed until he comes again to set up his kingdom? What's it going to be like? Well, this describes Christianity in 2023 to a T. It's amazing. Jesus says that it would be this way, and each of the parables uncovers another facet of this period, and you'll see how they perfectly parallel our time. Now, this is the mystery form of the kingdom. As Janetta was talking about, she says, well, the kingdom is so... Yes, this is the mystery form of the kingdom. The And by that, we don't mean that it's some sort of clandestine, secretive thing. The word mystery, as it's used in Scripture, simply means something that was previously hidden and is now revealed. So it means that this is something they didn't see in the Old Testament. This was something they didn't know about. They only saw the Messiah coming and setting up the kingdom. Now, I don't deny that there were a few subtle hints that there might be something going on in there, but they never got a description of it. They, they just saw the Messiah coming and establishing his kingdom internally and externally. They didn't see this period in between. And so we call it the mystery form, the, that which was hidden from the past. And it's a period of time when the kingdom goes on with the king being physically absent. Jesus is at this point in heaven. Now that's not to say he's not present in our midst because obviously the Bible says he is. But in terms of where his glorified body is, he is seated at God the Father's right hand, interceding for us in heaven. And he's awaiting the time to return to earth. So there's a sense in which this is the kingdom with the king in absentia. Now, some theologians have found difficulty with this and therefore determined that you can't have a kingdom if the king isn't there. But that is not the case. There is a realm here and there are people here who are subjects of Christ and Christ is the king by definition of who he is, though he is in absentia. And the classic illustration of that is found in David. David was still the king of Israel even when Absalom rebelled and rejected him and his revolutionary cohorts joined with him and rejected David. Even when they chased him out in the wilderness and he hid for his life for a long period of time, he was still the king. Israel was still his realm. He still had the right to rule. And he was still the recognized monarch in the hearts of many of the people. And there was a day when he came back to take up the throne that was rightfully his. And so, in the like way, Christ is, in that sense, the king in abstentia. So then, chapter 13 describes this period of time when the Lord Jesus Christ is ruling his subjects on the earth, though he himself in his glorified physical form is absent. So the disciples needed to have an understanding of this period as they set out to evangelize. Because after he was gone back to heaven, they would be the ones who served as the foundational elements in this parenthesis. And they needed to know what it would be like and what they were to do. Now just another note to try to help you define this period. The period in which we live is also called the church age. You're probably more familiar with that term. 
We are the unique mystery of this period. And that is defined for us rather explicitly by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3. He says in verses 4 to 6, The mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, the mystery of this age is that Jew and Gentile would constitute a new body, a new identity that was previously unknown. And that is the church. The church is the body of Christ. It is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. That was not seen in the Old Testament. That was hidden from them. So there's a sense in which this is the mystery age. <coughs> now we must understand that the kingdom is not the same as the church. And the church is not the same as the kingdom. The church and the kingdom are distinct in that the kingdom existed before the church, and the kingdom will go on after the church is gone. But for this period of time right now, Christ's kingdom is mediated here on earth through the church. So during this specific time, the church there's a sense in which the church is Christ's kingdom here on the earth, but it is not exactly the same. Now there are four points that we want to focus on as we go through the chapter. <coughs> First is the place then the plan, then the parable, and then the purpose. So let's begin, as we look through this section, let's begin with the place, verses 1 and 2. On that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. Verse 1 begins by saying, on that day. What does that mean? It means the same day that Jesus' mother and brothers came looking for him, probably to persuade him to stop the preaching and teaching they knew it would cost him his life. He'd been blasting the Pharisees who had accused him of blasphemy, and prior to that he'd healed a man possessed with a demon who was blind and mute and also perhaps also deaf, and it's all on that same day. And on that day he went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Now, I recognize that that's just a geographical footnote. And it doesn't convey any profound spiritual truth. But God's word is breathed out by God, and so every word is for our edification. And so the question that came to my mind is, why does Matthew make a point of telling us this seemingly trivial little detail? Why, why does he tell us that Jesus left the house and went down by the seashore and a big crowd gathered, so he got on a boat and sat down and the crowd was on the beach? Why didn't he just start with verse 3 and he spoke many things to them in parables? Why is it important to include the details of verses 1 and 2? Well, I think it's important, if for no other reason, than just an interesting way to remember the transition here. But I think it's also interesting to note that at the beginning of his ministry, he seemed to spend a lot of time teaching in houses and synagogues a lot. Uh, but from this point on in his ministry, he seems to spend much more time outside carrying on ministry along the seashore, on the highways and byways, and on the streets. You see him on the hillsides of the countryside. It's almost like there is a subtle 
statement being made. He's no longer spending his time in Jewish homes and Jewish synagogues. This is a new dimension. Yes, most of his audience were Jews, but there were many Gentiles in those crowds. So the kingdom is being preached to the nations. If he'd been in a Jewish house or a Jewish synagogue, no Gentile was ever allowed to go there. They wouldn't have heard. But public curiosity is still very high about Jesus. In spite of their leader's rejection of him, there are many people who are interested in him. He fascinated people, and they just mobbed him. And so he climbs on a boat uh, so that it's just off shore, and he sat down to teach them. Now, the text doesn't tell us if this was one of Peter's or John's boats, but I would guess it probably was. So he had them pull the boat out far enough that the crowd could stand along the shore while he sat on the boat and taught them. The, the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee drops off rather sharply, so the crowd wouldn't have been tempted to try to wade out to the boat. And the standard position for a rabbi to teach was while sitting down. Uh, so that's what he did. And the sea would make a natural amplification of his voice for them to hear. If you've ever been on a lake, you find that the human voice travels quite well over water. So you can hear people talking from a good distance away. Uh, so this was the perfect setup for him to teach. And that brings us then to the plan. In verse 3, the plan, it says, And he spoke many things to them in parables. And what he taught them, they didn't understand at all. He, that was the whole plan. Yeah. What do I mean? Just this. Since they wouldn't listen to him when he spoke, spoke clearly and understandably, he'll now speak to, so that they couldn't understand him. Uh, up to this point in his ministry, there's not one recorded parable. Uh, Matthew 13 is the first time in the New Testament we run across a parable. But all through Jesus' teaching prior to this, recorded in Matthew, he gave them graphic analogies. Uh, for example, in chapter 5, he said men were to be like uh, salt and light in the world. Uh, in chapter 6, he talked about the kingdom of God. He talked about how important it was to perceive the birds and the lilies of the field in relationship to how you sought the kingdom of God. In chapter 7, he talked about a wise builder and a foolish builder. He talked about a foundation of sand and a foundation of rock. He talked about building a structure. In chapter 9, he talked about garments, and he talked about putting wine into certain kinds of wineskins as illustrations of spiritual truth. In chapter 11, he talked about children playing in the marketplace as illustrative of certain spiritual responses. And those are all some wonderful allusions and figures of speech, but no parables. Because an unexplained parable is a riddle that can't be understood. So first he spoke very clearly, and then because they wouldn't listen, he began speaking in riddles. And in fact, from here on out, all he did was teach in parables. Uh, if you look down to verse 34, it says... All these things Jesus spoke to the crowd in parables, and he was not speaking to them without a parable. They wouldn't listen when he spoke in plain terms, so now he spoke in terms they couldn't understand. Listen, their unwillingness to listen even went further. 
1 Corinthians 14.21 tells us that after the Holy Spirit came, he gave the apostles the ability to speak in foreign languages. And that gift was a sign for the Jews. It says, In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So the gift of speaking in a foreign language was a t sign to Israel that these men were God's appointed representatives. But even then, most people didn't listen to them. Yes, I know there were thousands of Jews who came to faith on the day of Pentecost and in the days that followed, but the vast majority of Jews still refused to listen and rejected the message of Christ and his kingdom. Now, what is a parable? What is a parable? The Greek word is parabole. Uh, it's derived from a verb which means to throw alongside or to put alongside. So it means to put something alongside something else so that a comparison can be made. That's basically what it came to mean. Uh, it's a comparison or an illustration. A spiritual or moral truth would often be expressed by laying it alongside, so to speak, a physical example uh, that could be more easily understood. A common observable object or practice would be used to illustrate a subjective truth or principle. That would be well known, that which was well known was laid alongside that which was not known or understood in order to explain it. That's a parable. And the term parabole is used in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, some 45 times, and it, which tells us that it was a very common form of Jewish teaching. Uh, you can sum it up by saying it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Uh, that is a parable. Any good teacher knows you must communicate to people in terms of parables. You, you must communicate to people in terms of analogies to life. You can't just talk about the supernatural dimension in abstract terms. You must draw alongside these theological and spiritual concepts using that which is concrete and down to earth so that students can understand the more difficult from that which is readily understood. And so here, Jesus teaches profound spiritual lessons about a period of time no one ever knew about. And he does it in the simplest terminology so that those whom he wishes to understand can understand it very easily. He uses a man spreading seed in a field and birds and a road and thorns and sun and grain. And then he uses wheat and tares and mustard seeds and leaven and a hidden treasure, a pearl, and a fishing net. Those were all common things to those people in their agrarian and agricultural lifestyle. Now let me tell you why parables are an effective teaching tool. And I'll give you four reasons. First of all, they make truth concrete. They make truth concrete. Most people think in pictures. And they take abstract concepts and make pictures out of them. We may not understand the concept of spreading the gospel, but we do understand it when we see a man 
throwing seed in a field. Uh, so they function to objectify truth and make it concrete. Second, they make truth memorable. They make truth memorable. By that mean, by that I mean, if you remember the story, you can always recover the spiritual meaning because all of the elements are there in the story. So they allow truth to be remembered. Third, they make truth interesting. They make truth interesting. They reduce it from a rather dull sort of intangible thoughts down to real-life situations that are interesting and grab our attention. Fourth, they make truth personally discoverable. They make truth personally discoverable. In other words, as the story goes, you begin to internalize the spiritual truth and see it in the story so that you internalize that truth yourself. So parables are a marvelous mode of teaching because they make truth concrete, they make it memorable, interesting, and personally discoverable. And thus Jesus spoke in parables as the Hebrews commonly did. However, in these particular parables, the truth is not made clear because the basic story tells nothing but the literal account without presenting the moral or spiritual truth. It was only to his disciples that Jesus explained what the soil, the seed, the thorns, and other figures represent. And, and an unexplained parable is nothing more than an impossible riddle whose meaning could only be guessed at. So let's move then from a consideration into a consideration of the first parable in this chapter, which is the parable of the sower. Let's begin reading verse 3 through 9. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up, them up. And others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil, and were yielding a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now Jesus is on very familiar territory as he speaks about this, because this was largely an agricultural society. Everyone understood the sowing of seed. Everyone understood what was involved in that. Uh, it may have been that as Jesus was off to sh the shore of the Lake of Galilee in a boat seated there, teaching the multitude gathered on the shore, they could have looked off in the distance and seen this very thing taking place. In any case, all of them would have been familiar with a man going up and down the furrows of a plowed field sowing seed. He would drape a bag of seed over his shoulder or tuck it up under his arm, and that bag would be full of seed. And there would be an opening in the end, and the man would reach in and take out a handful of seed and cast it on either side of him as he went along. He would, get, he would scatter the seed into the furrows and he would do it with ordered steps in a straight line. When he reached the end of the line, he would turn and start the other way, never miss a step, continue throwing the seed. And that's how the field was sown, by throwing the seed, of the human broadcasting method. And as he threw that seed, 
Jesus says there's four kinds of soil on which that seed will fall. The first is the soil beside the road, verse 4. And he says, so some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Now the Galilee region was crisscrossed with fields of various kinds of crops, usually wheat or barley. And the, word, the term road here refers primarily to the narrow paths that separated one field from another. They were only about three to five feet wide. Uh, farmers used the paths to walk between the fields, and travelers walked on them as they went from one part of the country to another. You'll recall that in chapter 12, when we studied there the story of which Jesus and his disciples were walking through the fields of grain, and the disciples were eating the heads of the grain as they walked. No doubt they were walking on these narrow little paths. There were no fences around the fields. There were no walls separating the fields. There were just these narrow paths for travelers and for the farmer to get around in his area. And over time, as the farmer and others used these paths, the dirt would become packed down, hard, never turned over, never loosened, and because all of the continual pounding under feet, underfoot there, and the dryness of that part of the world, it would become very compacted so that it was very hard. And when the farmer came along and threw the seed and it went beyond the furrow and landed on that hard surface, it would not penetrate the ground. So it would lay there on the top of the dirt and the birds would come and eat the seed. And what they didn't eat, Luke's account says, was trampled underfoot by the feet of people who were passing through the field. That's the soil on the side of the road. Then in verse 5, we come to the rocky ground. It says that some of the seed fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. Now, this does not refer to loose rocks because the farmer could have removed, would have removed all of the rocks and tree stumps and other such objects from his field before planting. Rather, this is referring to an underlying layer of rock just below the surface. Uh, in various places in Israel, there's limestone rock that runs under the surface. And in some places, that rock bed comes up very close to the surface. So there's just a couple of inches between the soil and then underneath it, a solid rock bed of limestone. And when cultivating the field, you might not see it or it might be too large for you to break up and remove. And so right beneath the soil in this hard rock bed is this hard rock bed. And as the seed falls and begins to germinate and tries to shoot its roots down, the roots hit the rock bed. And they have nowhere to go. The soil there enables them to spring up. The rest of the verse says immediately they spring up because they had no depth of soil. That is saying that those seeds grew taller than the rest of the grain because all of their growth was directed upwards because they couldn't see, couldn't put any roots downward. Uh, and then, verse 6, when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. So they flourished immediately. But when the sun comes out, those plants died because their roots were not strong enough to maintain moisture or find moisture, and the rock bed hindered them so that they die in the heat of summer. Verse 7 introduces us to the thorny soil. You might understand it better if you think in terms of briars. Uh, the, the word refers to any type of bush or shrubbery that has numerous sharp thorns. Uh, and it says the thorns came up and choked them out. And in this case, the soil looks good. It's deep, it's rich, it's tilled. Uh, it looks good and ready, and the seed falls into that area. It begins to germinate, but there are also the roots of briars in that soil. And 
The briars are native and natural to that soil. They belong in that soil. They're at home in that soil. And so the briars just dominate and strangle and grow up fast and choke out the grain. And there's not enough room for both the thorns and the grain to share the nutrients of the soil. And so that good soil, the good seed dies. Finally, in verse 8, it's the good soil. And others fell on the good soil and were yielding a crop. saw a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. This is nice, deep, soft, clean soil. Unlike the hard soil of the, the roadside, this is soft soil. It's, it's deep, unlike the stony under limestone ground, the stony limestone ground. And it's clean, like the, unlike the uh, thorn-infested soil. And there's, the, here the seed springs to life and it brings forth a tremendous harvest. And what that means when it says 100-fold, 60-fold, and 30-fold is that the seed produces 160 or 30 times the amount of harvested grain seeds in comparison to the amount of seed that was planted. In biblical times, the average crop ratio was less than 1 to 8. If a crop, a, a very good crop would be tenfold, 10 times the amount of seed planted. But Jesus is talking about yields that are truly phenomenal. So the parable then is very simple. Man goes out and throws seed. Seed falls on four kinds of places. It falls in a hard path where it will never germinate. It's either picked up by birds or trampled under feet by those who walk on the path. Some seed falls on shallow soil with a rock underlayment. So it germinates for a little while because the sun and the water are there to start with. It responds, but its growth is all upward. There's no root. The sun scorches and burns that plant up there and it dies. Then there's the seed that falls on the thorny, briar-filled ground that's strangled out and choked out by that which already lives there and is natural to the place. And then there's that which falls on the good, clean, deep, rich, soft soil. It grows and produces a tremendous harvest. And finally, verse 9 simply says, He who has ears, let him hear. What does that mean? It means if you can understand this, then understand it. If you can get the message, then get the message because it's an important message. You say, well, who can this, who, who is this who can hear? Listen, the only people who can understand it are people who believe in the king, those who are redeemed, those who are in the kingdom. Because if you're in the kingdom, the king promises to explain to you the meaning of this. You see, the benefit of being a Christian is not that you get instant academic knowledge. Rather, is that you get the resident truth teacher, the Holy Spirit, abiding in you so that you can understand God's word on your own. That doesn't mean you don't have to study it, that you just automatically understand it. But it means that you have the Holy Spirit guiding you to the truth as you study his word. Yeah. Now, Jesus is, was not mocking his hearers, but was rather pointing out to them that they would need more than their own human understanding to interpret the meaning. It's almost like he was giving an invitation to those who were serious about following him to come ask him for help in understanding it like the disciples were about to do. Otherwise, they would not have ears to hear what he was really saying. Well, his teaching in parables obviously set off a firestorm among his listeners because suddenly they found themselves unable to understand what he meant when he taught them. And that brings us to the next section, which is Jesus' explanation of his purpose. 
And he tells us in there that the purpose was to reveal and to conceal. And we're going to study that next week because our time is up. So are there any questions or comments about what we have studied so far? Thank you for explaining so well. <laughs> Jeanetta? He, he left the homes and the synagogues, which were filled with Jews, and he went out in the fields where anybody could hear, including some Gentiles who would be going through. So, anything else? All right. Let's close with prayer then and go to our worship service. Praise the Lord. Father, we come before you now, and we just thank you that you have given us ears to hear. Lord, there are so many in our world who do not have those ears to hear, and you've hidden the truth from them because they refuse to listen. And so we thank you and praise you for giving us the ability to understand these things through the indwelling Holy Spirit, and that we can then teach them these truths to others. Lord, we pray now as we go into the worship service that our hearts would be filled with praise to you, that we would focus on the teaching of your word, that we would not just take it in intellectually, but that it would become uh, work its way out in the way we walk our daily Christian walk in obedience to you. And all these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.